Welcome to African Theological Scholarship Podcast, where scholars of African Christianity and theology discuss their research. Your host is Harvey Quiani, professor of African theology at Liverpool Hope University. Here's today's episode. Hi, Rudolf. Oh, hello, Harvey. How are you doing? Uh, fine, thank you. And how about you? I'm doing all right. Mm. Um, you are in Ghana, in Akropong. Yes, the and eastern the side of Ghana. Eastern side, yeah. Mm. Uh, and this is the Akrofi Christella Institute. Yes, of theology, mission, and culture. Okay. In Akropong, yes. Awesome. Can you introduce yourself then to, to, to our viewers? Okay. So, um, as Harvey mentioned, my name is, and I prefer to mention my full name most of the time. Sure. Um, the cuckoo is name given to a Wednesday born male uh, among the Fanti people, in the central part of Ghana. Yes. How, how do you spell cuckoo? It's K W K U. Okay. K W K U. And uh, Abraham, my Kenyan friend, tells me the name for a chicken in, in I think, one of the languages. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so I'm married to Millicent. Uh, by God's grace, we have three young children. I'm a Methodist, a uh, Methodist lay person. And I've been in, involved with the children ministry, children Sunday school ministry for some time now. I think since the year 2000. Uh, but I began my theological studies here in the year 2007 after my first degree in computer science at the Kwame University of Science and Technology. So from 2007 up to now, I've been here at the Institute, uh, first with my MA and then later to a PhD, uh, which I finished in 2015. And currently I serve as a research fellow and also as director of ICT. And there's a new center we've um, established, uh, very new, uh, we call Center for Early African Christianity. And I have had the privilege to also be a director for that center. Uh, pretty much that I think for now. Uh, my interest, of course, um, interested in Christianity in the early centuries, uh, the Roman world, and particularly also North Africa, Roman North Africa, and contemporary um, Christology and theology, African Christology, African theology. I also have interest in what we call mother tongue um, theology and also mother tongue biblical studies, uh, reading the Bible, studying the Bible with indigenous uh, mother tongues. And then also a bit of interest in leadership, African Christian leadership. So some of the courses I teach uh, here are in these areas. Of course, uh, what is known or uh, what Akofi is known best for <laughs> gospel and culture engagement. So, obviously, whoever works here has some interest in that one way or the other 
Yeah, so I think that's 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 a little bit about me now, where I am, and what I'm yeah. doing. Good. Um, let's talk about your PhD. Yes. So I'll tell a story, <laughs> sure. maybe as a way of introduction. When I had the chance to sit under the feet of uh, Professor Kwame Bediako, uh, who I take pride as my first academic theological teacher or tutor. He, we, I mean, we read his books and we come, came across a uh, whole discussion of Jesus as ancestor. And at that time, in 2007, I wasn't so much interested in that way of thinking. Of course, as a scripture union uh, boy, you have a way of reading the Bible, and sometimes you take certain things with some suspicion. So I think that was that was part of my struggle. Fast forward, I finished the MA, had a chance to continue with the MTH PhD program. And we did a course we call Aspects of World Christian History, uh, which was taught by Andrew Walls. And as we studied the likes of Justin Mata, I ended up writing an essay, uh, semester essay on Justin Mata's Logos Christology. I was interested in how um, he understood Logos Christology and how he applied Logos Christology in his claims, for example, saying that Socrates was a Christian before Christ. Uh, but in, in doing that, it struck me that, hey, look, what Justin seems to be doing is or what Justin did with the Logos Christology is what Mediakule Okoa are trying to do with Ancestor Christology. I mean, it was just the realization of that. And so instantly my interest in Ancestor Christology began. began. And um, after of course, the coursework and thinking of a PhD PhD topic, I, I felt I, I wanted to look at how Logos Christology developed over a period of time and compare that to how Ancestor Christology has developed, uh, looking at the circumstances within, but it's, a, it's a war separated by many centuries, the Roman world, in the modern African context. Uh, but of course, I was aided uh, on, on ashamedly by the work of uh, Kwame Bediaku himself, his PhD, on the relevance, if you like, of second century Christian uh, scholars or thinkers uh, to that of the modern African Christian uh, scholars. So looking at the issue of identity and how that played out in the life and, and vocation, if you like, of, of the selected second century authors that he looked at, and then the modern uh, African theologian. So the likes of um, Tertullian, the likes of um, Clement of Alexandria, of Justin, as well as um, modern African theology, John uh, Biti, uh, Vincent Molago, and um, so that gave me some kind of grounding as to what to do uh, in my interest. And then 
reading an article by um, Andrew Walls. Uh, the, the title doesn't come readily, but he looked at the, if you like, what I would call story of conversion um, from uh, within the Christian movement, beginning from Jerusalem to the wider Greco-Roman world, and then even to, to Europe among the barbarians and up to the present day context. And in his study, he realized that there are three stages of conversion. There is the missionary stage, which is typified by the ministry of Paul. Paul was a missionary to the Greco-Roman world, a Jew, but yes, born in the context of the wider Greco-Roman area. But with all his efforts, he was still a missionary to the Gentile world. The second stage and rewards highlight is what he calls a convert stage. And here he uses Justin Mata as one who exemplified this stage. And Justin, you may know, uh, came from, if you like, a non-Christian background, a non-Jewish background. And he himself was in search of what he called um, the true philosophy until he got illusioned. And so one old man encouraged him to read the Hebrew Bible in Greek. And then found a love for Christ and the prophet who spoke concerning him. So Justin represents someone who had once one leg, if you like, in the Greco-Roman world before he got converted uh, into Christianity. Then there's a third stage, what Andrew Wall will call the refiguration stage. And this for him is typified by origin of Alexandria. In origin, as you know, uh, we are told by Eusebius, his father, uh, whether they were Christians before he was born or immediately after he was born, it's not quite, not quite clear. But his father trained origin as it were with the scriptures on one hand and the Greek science or learning on the other. So Origen was born into a, a Christian home. Um, we don't hear much of a story of conversion as we find in Justin. So Origen represents someone who is born into like the second, third generation of Christianity. And so he comes with some confidence in his traditional teachings, uh, and then the Christian teaching, and, and how he's able to reconfigure his inherited tradition in the light of Christ. It's a stage, a creative stage in conversion, as Andrew was teaches us. So I took these three stages or paradigm of conversion, and I said, okay, how is the nature of Logos Christology within these three stages? as Andrew Walls has, um, you know, informed us. And so in my research, um, uh, of course, I needed to establish that before I can even ask the further question of the relevance of ancestor Christology in the African context. I had to deal with how Logos Christology in itself developed and progressed. So in putting... The, the development of Logos Christology under these three uh, stages of paradigm, I found that, that 
if we pick the book of John, the prologue where we have the explicit association of Logos and Jesus, um, is foundational. So I see the prologue as a foundation to Logos Christology. And the book of John itself can be seen as a missionary document to the Greco-Roman world. So Logos Christology under the missionary stage, if you like, is foundational, it's suggestive. It's like John saying, hey, I want you to see Jesus as the Logos. Um, and I'm saying this because what we know about the Greco-Roman world and the role or the development of the Logos concept. And so that led me also to investigate further the origins of the Logos concept within the Greco-Roman world. And it takes us to um, Heraclitus of Ephesus, who is known to have been the first person to use the word Logos, the Greek word Logos, in a technical sense. Logos, of course, you know, means um, word or reason in everyday speech. But for a philosopher like Heraclitus to use it to represent a concept, we, we take that as a beginning of, if you like, the conceptual use of the word Logos. And down the line in the, in the history of uh, Greek philosophy, uh, the Stoics came along uh, um, and they also developed uh, this understanding of Logos as for them uh, that which gave order to this universe. The universe is ordered. There's a principle behind how the universe is ordered. And that principle is, is for the Stoics, the Logos. And, and that Logos has or anyone, anything reasonable as it were, derives from this uh, principle, this general principle of Logos. So this Logos is it's a seed-giving principle, what, is, what they would normally we hear, Logos spermaticus. Yeah. So every, everything orderly done well in the universe derives from this um, general Logos principle. But beyond the Stoics, uh, we, we meet another personality, um, a Jewish person, but born in Alexandria, in Egypt. Uh, so he was far away from the land of uh, Judaism, but had, of course, the Old Testament in Greek to be able to appropriate the faith of his forefathers. And this personality is uh, none other than um, Philo, the Jew, or Philo of Alexandria. And Philo, in his own life and sense of vocation, he sought to, if you like, interpret the faith of his fathers, his forefathers, the Jewish faith, in the categories that would be meaningful to his, if you like, the Greek audience or the Roman audience. By this time, of course, the Romans were in charge of the lands that uh, the conquest of uh, Alexander the Great, you know, had given to the Greeks. So they were a mixture of Greek and Roman ideas. So we normally say Greco-Roman ideas. So 
Philo lived within the Greco-Roman world. And in his explication of um, the Jewish faith, he sought to use categories of, of thoughts, schools of thoughts within the wider Greco-Roman world. And so for him, in meeting this Logos idea, which have been developed over time, and for which by his time, not only the Stoics, but a school of thought that also developed following Plato's ideas, um, what we call Middle Platonism, um, had also played around with this Logos concept. But for Philo, because in accordance to the Jewish faith, God created the universe, God is creator for Philo. But for him, because God is far away, unlike what he has created, he couldn't touch the physical world, as we say it. So he needed a middle tire, what Andrew Walsh would call a shock absorber, something to use in order to create this physical world that we see. And for Philo, that which God brought into existence and which was his instrument to create the world, was the Logos. And, and it's, it's instructive because the Hebrew word Davar, which, you know, as we, we read the Old Testament, we see creative application of that word, uh, God creating the world by his word, establishing the universe by his word and all that. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Bible, the Davai is translated Logos. So if Philo is reading the Old Testament in Greek, and wherever he sees the word of God, it will be the Logos of God. And so the creative use of the word Logos, you know, informed how um, Philo you know, <laughs> explicated his own Logos understanding. So when we come to Philo, we see that Logos, and according to him, is unlike God and also not like human beings. It's in between. You know? And for Philo, there was no way the Logos would become human. It was impossible in his mind. So when John proclaims, the missionary John proclaims that this Logos who was with God in the beginning, who is God, has become flesh, the person of you, the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, if I look here something like this, you would probably scratch his head and say, "Well, what? Maybe you don't even understand logos itself." But be that as it may, that 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 is it. So it's the it helps us when we see the 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 import of John's prologue in, within the context of the wider Roman world, you know. Over, year, over the years, um, Christians take it for granted. Say the word of God became flesh. But if we take our ears to the first hearers who had some background thoughts of what the Logos concept is all about, it will strike some, 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 you know, some thought that, wow, how could this Logos become human? And then, of course, in the prologue, he gives a summary of the entire way that this, this Logos who became flesh, this is how he lived and his life and ministry calls for our faith and devotion. But anyway, so 
Logos Christology within the missionary stage is, as I'm as been suggesting, it's a suggestive uh, mode, if you like. Now, when we come to Justin, who is within the convert stage, what is the nature of Logos Christology? And here we see Justin applying, you know, the understanding of Jesus as Logos. And in so doing, uh, they sought to explain what, they, what Christians meant by saying that this Logos, who is God, who is from God, who is eternally with God, became human. They had to explain that to their fellow Greek, Greek, uh, Greek thinking patrons. You know, so in, in Justin Matter, we see the mode of Burgos Christology as a, a clarifying mode. In other words, you are trying to explain what we mean by Logos Christology. Yeah. And in so doing, of course, you can apply and say, this same Logos that John talks about. And remember, John does not necessarily explicitly connect uh, the implication of Jesus as Logos to none other to other the non-Jewish traditions. He doesn't. He doesn't need to because he has his own interest. But with, with, with Justin, the question always comes, so what was God doing among the Greeks when uh, Jesus had not come? You know, that was a question that was being raised. So his answer is that, well, the, the Logos, who is Jesus, is, is before all creation, and he was active among the Jews, among the Jews, in as much as he was among the Greeks. And he was among the Greeks by giving his part of his self to them. So anyone who did things according to proper reason, again, you remember, Logos can mean reason. So for just anyone who did things reasonably well, participated in the Logos. And so Socrates um, participated in the Logos and he was charged for so many things, eventually being killed in the process. So Socrates, because he lived according to Logos, according to reason, is, uh, was a Christian before the coming of Christ. And that same Logos was what was active among the prophets in the Jewish. So you see that in Justin, there is some reconciliation that this Jesus, who is Logos incarnate, was active among non-Jewish traditions as well. And what Justin says, if you like, in, um, in simple terms, Clement of Alexandria comes and makes a bold claim. And so for him, and, and I see Clement as in between the convert stage and then a refrigeration stage because and, uh, Clement takes off as it were where Justin lives and then, but he prepares the way for origin. And I'll come to that. Even though origin we know was a student of his, origin hardly mentions Clement. But that's another discussion. But for, for Clement, this Logos, Jesus Christ, is the one who gave the law to the Jews and philosophy to the, to the Greeks. So, 
Jesus as Logos has been active in his creation from, from the beginning, you know. And so when Paul talks about the law being a, a teacher, a tutor for the Jews before the coming of Christ, for Clement, philosophy was also a tutor for the, the Greeks before the coming of Christ. So Logos Christology, like again, I said, within the um, convert stage, is a clarification, it's in a clarification mode, explaining what we mean by Jesus as Logos. When we move to the, the refiguration stage, where we meet the like of um, origin, I felt that we see a more innovative ap application of the logos because it has been suggested and it's been it's been cleared what we mean by that. And so now what? We innovatively apply this understanding of logos in, 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 our, in our endeavors. And I think a caveat to that is, is that it, this is, of course, you are looking at history and you are trying to understand what is happening. Um, it doesn't mean that, for example, Justin doesn't have some refiguration attempts. Uh, it doesn't also mean that origin does not do some clarification attempts. But in essence, you see that by the time of origin, the preoccupation of the suggestive mode or the clarification mode is not there. It's rather an assumption that Jesus is the Logos. And for origin, uh, Jesus is the source of all wisdom as the Logos. So his students should not be afraid to look for wisdom or truth in whatever mode or area they can find. It belongs to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. He is the Logos of all. There's, a, there's an assumption that because Jesus is the Logos, you can find truth in any way. Of course, apart from the Epicureans who, who kick away God in their philosophy. But all other schools of thought that recognizes providence or recognizes God, origin is saying, don't shy away from knowing the truth that they have been able to articulate. It belongs to Jesus in the end. <laughs> so going through that with the Logos concept, then I asked myself, what is happening in the, the African scene? And I found that using the same paradigm of conversion, you see that there have been some suggestive modes of ancestor Christology. People like John, John Obi from Ghana and uh, one Professor Chrissy Dixon, and I'm sure others who were in the beginning of, if you like, um, early 1980s or late 1970s, they were given the call of how Jesus can be seen as an ancestor, uh, but they don't go deeper to what that will mean. But following that, you also have various, from the 1980s going, there are various teachings or write-ups on the whole area of ancestor Christology. Um, names like, uh, of course, Charles Namiti, but Namiti is on a different category. But you have various scholars, you know, talking about ancestor Christology. But in, it, with my scheme, what I found that, what I found out was that 
um, the mode of ancestral Christology within the convert stage is again more clarification. If we don't, you don't have an elaborate form of application. It's, it's okay, if Jesus is ancestor, then it doesn't mean this, it means that those kind of dialogue, uh, those are the clarification mode, I call it, as uh, within the ancestor Christology. But when we meet the likes of Benjit Bujo, uh, who, for example, would have that Jesus as ancestor can inform the nature of the church in Africa and can even inform um, the whole area of ethics in Africa. You know his book, uh, the, uh, the title again doesn't come, but maybe I'll look for it. Yeah, his book where he explicates more on the ancestral Christology. That was his theme or his, his, his thesis that Jesus as ancestor can inform the way we think about church in Africa, as well as the whole area of ethics. I think African theology in this social context, I think, that's Bujo's, Bujo's way, yeah. And then Nyamiti, but maybe before I talk about Nyamiti, I can mention Bediako. Bediako also, you know, explore the whole area of ancestor from the Akan perspective. Uh, Akan, among the Akan of Ghana. Yes, and he also makes some fine um, points, particularly using the, the, the book of Hebrews, uh, the epistle to the, to the Hebrews, the New Testament, as his, one of his biblical bases. And he does some fine explications on what we mean by Jesus as ancestor. So again, I see, like Clement, I see Bediako as one leg between the clarification mode and one leg in the uh, innovative mode of ancestor Christology. But Charles Jamiti was, for me, the one who, like the origin of ancestor Christology. He, I mean, he started a number of volumes, write-ups on the whole idea of Jesus as ancestor. You know, and, and for him, even, we can even suggest that Jesus as ancestor can help us understand the whole mystery of Trinity. And for me, that's an innovative application of ancestor Christology. To, 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 to assume, to, to move away from, oh, should Jesus be an ancestor? Does he qualify to be an ancestor? He doesn't qualify. He said, well, we've, we've, we've gone that past that stage. Now we know that Jesus is ancestor. What does it mean for us in our Christian teaching? And so he takes that step, the innovative way, to apply the idea of ancestors to the whole mystery of the Trinity. So, so God is the ancestor of Jesus uh, and logically Jesus is the Holy Spirit also the ancestor, Jesus is the ancestor of the Holy Spirit. But if I leave it there, you might, you might say, what am I saying? Unless you read Yamiti's works. But what, what he seems to say is that there is that progression you know, and but the Father and the Son are held together, as we know in the Christian understanding, by by the Holy Spirit. You know, and there's there's a way to understand that mystery from the concept of from the from the concept of ancestors, as particularly as as we see in Africa. Yeah, but all that I see an innovative application of ancestor research. You may not agree with all that he says. 
But from a distance, this is what he's trying to do. And it can be encouraged. So what I then also brought to the table as, as in my own uh, thinking was all that has been going on, if we pay particular attention to the nuances of the mother tongue, then this uh, mo- most of the challenges people have with ancestor Christology could be addressed because among the Akan, the word for ancestor or what we would normally use to, to designate those who have gone before is nananum in some Now, the word nana, N-A-N-A, again, can be given as a name, um, but also is given to the chief or the king among the accounts. An elder, uh, maybe a family head, also can also be given the word, the name Nana. Now, whilst doing the work, I found some help by one uh, Ghanaian statesman, uh, uh, J.B. Dankwa. Now, J.B. Dankwa is mostly known in the political scene, but he did some, I mean, writings that can help you know, Akan Christians in their theologizing and in their Christological effort. Now, one of his key books, what it came to us with the title, The Akan, uh, the Akan Concept of God. Uh, I think you're familiar with that book. Uh, yes, I am. Yes. And he, 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 he approached the subject more on the ethical dimension to prove that the Akans also had um, their own view of God and the the ethical system was as good as can be found in any other context. And so in the process, he put some thoughts on, uh, on the whole idea of Nana. And he felt that the Nana concept, if you like, was the Akan way of um, summarizing the, the ideal person within the community. So the chief is given the title Nana because among the Akan, they see the chief as embodying who the real Akan should be, uh, the real person in the community. So the Nana concept in J.B. Dankwa's mind is linked to the ideal account person. And this ideal account person, because, and, and here he brings his, again, if you like, Christian understanding, is that image of God given to the account. And so he says that the Nana is the exemplifier uh, of who God is or who God ought to be. <laughs> That's what he said. So, um, and he, he makes the connection that what the Jews should have as Messiah, as a coming one, the Akan has a Nana. But he makes a point which I, I felt that if he had given some further thoughts in the light of the New Testament, he would have connected Jesus to that. But he says that contrary to the 
Jewish concept of Messiah, who is an expected uh, personage to come in as it were fulfill uh, God's mandate or God's will. The Akan Nana is discovered from the ground. Uh, he's not the one expected to come. He's the one that we find from the ground, so to speak. Uh, so he's a discovered Messiah, uh, not an expected Messiah. But I, I critique that and say that if Dankwa reads or read the, the prologue of John in his mother tongue, he, can, he could easily affirm that Jesus, yes, is both the expected Messiah and also the discovered Messiah, the one that accounts can discover from the ground, as it were, when they receive him in faith, when they respond to him in faith. And so my suggestion was that if we read the prologue, uh, with all that we know about uh, the Nana idea, and all that I've been able to say about the Logos, because whether we like it or not, if we take, for example, that the prologue contains a foundational Logos Christology, then wherever the prologue is read in the respective mother tongue, they are presented with some foundation Logos Christology. That, so that, that, that's the logic I was, I was mm-hmm. I, I, I trying to, to communicate across, that if the Akan is reading the prologue, in the mother tongue, in the Akan mother tongue, where the word for logos in our case is Assem, then immediately they are presented to the, with the fact that the Assem has become a person. What does that mean? Or what would that mean to the hearers? So in my submissions, therefore, I said that, well, if we read the prologue with the idea of ancestors or Nana in our mind, who end up realizing that the Assem of God, the Word of God, is also our Nana, our ancestor. And if we turn the other way around, if we pursue the idea of an ancestor of God to us, we will sooner or later realize that this ancestor is indeed the word of God to us. You know, but I'm using English terminology, so it might not be that clear, but in the Akan, you, it, the, the Nana, the Nana, by way of his life, it gives us a message, an assem, you see, because you know, Harvey, you know that sometimes messages are not verbally communicated, but the way somebody lives uh, gives you a message. So the way Nana Yesu, we see, lived his life and did the word of God, he's giving us a message and assembled a word, a word of God. So that's what I played around with um, in a final analysis of my work. And, and my hope was that it would serve as a model for other contexts. So if Dani Roba picks the prologue, and uh, what is the word for logos in there? And how is that explored in the pre-Christian tradition? And how does that connect with, with the idea of the ancestors within 
because the ancestors, if you know, also have a message for us. There's a word from the ancestors that the living always carry forward and they want to keep. Yeah, so Jesus as an ancestor, he has a word for us. He himself is the word anyway, but he has a message of God to us. So how the dynamics, and, and again, I, I mentioned that this would be more relevant in context where the whole issue of ancestors continues to, 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 to be key in the, in the traditional setup. Here in the Cropon, I mean, you can't, you can't do away with the ancestors. The yearly festivals that, um, that is observed among many, if not all, Akan tradition is linked to the ancestors. So it's something that Akan Christians will, will need to be creative in, 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 in their presentation of Jesus as Anna and how that, that had, and how that has implications for um, the nature of festivals that are celebrated, you know, the ordering of the community, ethics, and all. And if we stick our head up a bit, even how it relates to national politics, because the, the way our politics, in, at least in this part of the world, our politics are indirectly linked to our traditional conception of power and authority. You know, our traditional conception of leadership. And tradition, a current traditional conception of leadership cannot be pursued without a place given to the ancestors. You know, there is a, a current tradition that has been that is observed called the Adai. Uh, literally, in Akan is the uh, the place of rest. So the ancestors are resting, and occasionally the sitting chief needs to perform some rituals in recognition of his ancestors. He does so as it were, where, where they are being kept. There's two rooms. So he does so to, to like uh, pay homage and also fortify himself as a spiritual head of the community. So traditional leadership among the Akan at least is vitally linked to the ancestors and that projects itself in our national sense of politics. Uh, people don't say it, maybe they may want to deny it, but there's some linkage in there. And it to be Christian, it to be the task of Christians to throw more light on that as the gospel of Christ does for us. You know, we may not have the answers immediately, but we can let the light of Christ shine on them and we know the problems. And then we can again invite him to, to help us solve those problems. Sure. So in a nutshell, I think uh, yeah. that's, that's what I can say. Maybe you have some further questions. <laughs> What's the state of the conversation at the moment? So we've talked about, we've talked about Kwesi Dixon, John Proby. We've talked about John Beatty and, and Vincent Mlago and uh, Nyamiti, Bourgeois, um, there's yourself. Who else is wrestling with this question at the moment in the continent? Well, um, there's a, a book again by one Nigeria and author, Izibo. Um, oh, Victor. Victor, yes, yes, sure. yes, yes, yes. I think that the conversation is more on what um, Africans are making of Jesus. 
I think I'll, I'll put in a wider, wider context. Yeah. And so, um, yes, Victor's work. I mean, the others that, uh, that don't come ready, but we are still wrestling with what Africans are making of pieces. And, and because of the Pentecostal stream of things, um, what, what we, we can encourage perhaps would be how Pentecostals are thinking of Christ in the midst of all the African realities. Uh, I think Professor Kovnas Amwajedu um, does uh, help us in most cases in kind of giving us what is going on in the Pentecostal scene, but also giving some critique um, that is needed. Yeah. In, in. So I, I would say that, um, yes, we, we, the whole issue of who is Jesus to us in the midst of all that is happening in Africa and, and how, and how, and, and how does our knowledge or understanding of Christ help us address some of these essential issues in Africa? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, in, in many circles, it feels like we are still trying to make an apology for thinking about Christ as an ancestor. Yes. Would, yeah. would you say that's the case on your end? Yes. I mean, <clears throat> earlier when I did mention it's a matter of time, but the whole thing again is is linked to a sense of identity. Sure. Um, you see, uh, makes a point indirectly that the, for the early century writers, they, you know, eventually have to settle in with or wrestle with the idea of identity, but eventually will 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 we'll write from this settled sense of being a Christian and a Greek at the same time. Because by becoming Christians, they don't see themselves as becoming Jews or ceasing to be Greeks. So in Africa, yes, to some extent we've made progress. Um, and Andrews, for example, feels that African Christianity really is, is in that refrigeration mode, a refrigeration stage. He says, what we need now is the likes of origin who are confident in their Christian faith and at the same time are informed in their tradition. So to make that innovative, uh, you know, exploration of, but you, you need to do, you, you, you can come to that point if you are kind of a settled identity. Um, that you are not ashamed as an African to be a Christian. Uh, and in becoming a Christian as an African, you are not mimicking a non-African who brought the gospel to you as it were, but you are doing so as one who believes that this is where God has met you in Christ. He, 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 he does not, he's not asking you to deny your in her, your heritage, but he's embracing that and he's saying that out of your heritage, I want to reveal myself to you more. This sense of identity 
that I can know more about God in Christ, even as I am, because God has accepted me as I am. So once that settled sense of identity has caught on, uh, we may probably move from the apologetic bit and be more of the innovative bit. You know, because origin was not an, he didn't struggle to see himself as a Christian and a Greek at the same time. That's what, that's what he had. But uh, maybe he had a, a father who could, right from infancy, show him that it is possible to work with, to work with within these two worlds, the world of the Bible and, the, and your tradition. You know, but of course, allegiance is to God in Christ Jesus. So when Africans, greater, um, greater amount of Africans, if you like, come to this realization of a self, of a settled self-consciousness, settled sense of identity of an African and a Christian and not ashamed of it or afraid of it, then this innovative um, process, yeah. I mean, the people I've mentioned, uh, like Charles Nyamiti, uh, I mean, Imbiti, uh, uh, they, they are pioneers. They, they, you know, in their ministry and service, got to that point that they were Africans and Christians. And so they could use African categories to explain the Christian message. It's a mystery. I like what Paul talks about in Ephesians. So I've written this small piece to you so you get to know my understanding of the mystery of Christ. So it's a mystery. Africans are invited to talk about this mystery with their categories. And as Bediakos, just as God accepted the Greek categories of thought, the Latin category of thought, the uh, the like the barbarians as the Latin and Romans, uh, Greek and Roman call them, the old categories of thought. Why can't he accept African categories of thought in, you know, explaining or describing this mystery that all of us are invited into? Yeah. And I mean, that is a radical invitation, right? <laughs> uh, what, what do you think would be the implications of that for the continent? What, what would that mean for us as African Christians? Mm, mm. With, this, with this settled sense of identity. Yes, that we can yeah. confidently say, this is who we are, this is what we believe. Oh, I mean, it's uh, no one, no no one can measure, you know, the implication of that. I mean, yeah. it's perhaps it would be a similar and maybe a more, um, much more deeper than we 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 have as a Western legacy of of Christianity. You see, um, Christianity in Europe you know, went through these stages uh-huh. to a point where many Europeans felt that because they are Europeans, they are necessarily Christian. You know, uh-huh. that has its challenges. 
But imagine all the discoveries and the revolutions, industrial revolutions and all the universities, all that uh, development, I believe, was were possible because at a point in 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 Europe, the 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 whole issue of identity was not an issue. You know, Christ. I, I mean, sadly, some will even feel that uh, God has specifically chosen them <laughs> to to spread the light of the gospel to the wider world. I mean, that's the one side of it. But imagine Africans having this sense of identity that God accepts us as we are, and so we too we can contribute to the table in understanding who God is. I mean, the 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 the, the implications are, are beyond measure, uh, and that and perhaps that is what um, I think institutions like ACI is striving to do uh, uh, with the foundation of a foundational work of our, our founding director and the, and the current crop of generations that are coming. You know, the encouragement to to be confident in your Christian affirmation, but also not shy away from your tradition. Awesome. Yeah. This has been very helpful. Mm. You have a book coming out soon. Yeah, so uh, by the grace of God, is still in uh, editorial stage um, with uh, Waves and Stock. So hopefully... And in a few months ahead, maybe we'll see the light of day. We've 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 captioned it um, Jesus Christ as Logos incarnate and resurrected Nana or ancestor. And the subtitle I'm pushing is yeah, an African perspective on conversion and Christology. Because as I think over it, I I I I see um, the connection between conversion and Christology. Sure. Or Christology and conversion. Christology, if you like, is, is the byproduct of the conversion process. And conversion is, here again, I, I, I understand it with Andrew Ross's thoughts on the turning towards the direction of Jesus, what is already there. And that process of turning, um, that process of turning, we we make efforts to articulate our experiences, and and those comes out as Christology. It's a mystery, so there's nothing like a final Christology. We can't have a final Christology until until we see Christ face to face. The conversation will have to go on, and sure. And, sure. and and we can all we can all be enriched by the various images that are worked out from various cultural contexts. And by the way, uh, again, with what Paul talks, tells us in Colossians, that all things were made through him and for him. Mm-hmm. So, so um, every cultural image um, is for Jesus, really belongs to him. And, and all of us can be enriched as we the danger is when we feel that our image of Jesus is the biblical image. <laughs> you know, but Paul 
Enco, uh, uh, New Testament is is open ended. Nowhere, as they say, unless you want to take um, the the text in Revelation that woe to the one who adds to this revelation <laughs> I'll take away. But in the minds of Paul and others, it's it's open. It's a mystery open before us that which was hidden, God has made it open. And, you know, but we, it's not exhaustive yet. We are we are all participating in that mystery. You know, until again as you say the full stature of Christ is revealed. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. This has been very rich. I've enjoyed it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank uh, you. I feel like I've sat at the feet of Andrew Wars and Bediaco again. <laughs> Within one hour. <laughs> With your help, of course. Yeah. Oh, this has been yeah. really good. Thank yeah. you so much. Anything yeah. else you'd like to say? Share with now. Uh, I, I do ask people to say something to the younger generation of Africans right, uh, yeah. growing up in this continent where Christianity is exploding, but also many other things are happening. Yes. Would, would, would you have one or two things to say? Yeah, I think recently I've been reflecting on faithfulness, you know, and sincerity. I think that the struggles are real, and the voices are many, <laughs> but one needs to be sincere and faithful in their work with the Lord. And out of that sincerity, out of that faithfulness, you know, the Lord himself will reveal to you, you know, what needs to be done and how it ought to be done. Yeah. So they should... Young as young Christians on the continent, my little encouragement is that we continue to work on our conviction, convictions as Christians, in all sincerity and faithfulness. Yeah. You know, and continue to believe that God has put us here in Africa or wherever we are in the world for a purpose. It is not by chance that we, we are where we are. But if we find ourselves in Africa, then we can be encouraged that through us, God's um, purposes and, uh, and vision for Africa through the gospel of Jesus Christ can be realized. It might not be in our generation, but in our faithfulness and in our sincerity in what we do, uh, we can be a blessing to the generation that will come after us. Uh, I didn't mention in my submission, but what also struck me was the need to discern where you are. You see, um, in in my in, in the in the in the PhD process, I realized the need to discern where you are in the narrative or conversation. So, for example, ancestral Christology, where are we? So, be able to discern that we are in that innovative stage. And so you need to do A, B, and C. I, my encouragement is to trust God and, yes, pray and ask for his discernment, to discern where we are in his, in his work. And so what 
whatever he's calling us to do is is to build on what has what has gone before us and also to prepare the ground for what will come after us so there's a need to learn to discern where we are where you are in your life yes but where you are also in the the movement of Christ so that his call for your life you know you can be able to connect that and say that okay as long as God gives me strength this is what I'm doing and once I do it well in all sincerity and in faithfulness it can be a blessing to those around me and even those who will come after me can also build upon that and because the work is always beyond us it is god's work and <laughs> not our work so let's be encouraged to to be faithful to be sincere with the experience of christ wherever we find ourselves and allow god to do his work through us for his glory and glory alone in jesus name <laughs> thank you so much this has been very rich i really appreciate it Thank you. Thank you Harry for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. You know, it's always beautiful when you get the chance to talk about your work. Then it helps you to to reflect further. So I'm That's grateful right. grateful for this opportunity. Awesome. Yeah. That's all right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll stay in touch. Sure. God bless. Bye. God bless. Bye.